0: Previously on Flying the Line, ALPA President Hank Duffy prepares for an impending showdown with Frank Lorenzo. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Pilots for Pilots, our emergency relief fund, where pilot donations help provide grants to those who have suffered from a widespread natural disaster. To donate, apply for a grant, or learn more, visit alpa.org. P4P. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the airline pilots' association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume Two by George E. Hopkins. Chapter Fourteen: The Continental Strike. Alpa's Dark Night of the Soul, Part One. In June 1992, the Senate failed to end a Republican filibuster to block passage of a law that, if enacted, would have protected workers against being permanently replaced during a strike. George Bush had vowed to veto it in any case, but 36 GOP senators saved him the trouble by talking the law to death, even though it would have exempted employers who agreed to arbitration. Because professional airline pilots had recently suffered permanent replacement during their Lorenzo Wars at Continental and Eastern, ALPA lobbied strongly for a political solution to this problem. As former ALPA president Dave Benke knew, politics matter, particularly in a fight. ALPA got into a real fight with Frank Lorenzo in 1983. For the 1,000 Continental pilots who stuck it out to the bitter end, a friend in the White House might have made a difference. National Airlines pilots had Harry Truman in 1948, the Southern pilots had John F. Kennedy in 1963, but the Continental pilots would have no such luck with Ronald Reagan. Being permanently replaced has always been the single greatest fear of any union member during a strike. The Railway Labor Act of 1926 and the Pilots' Amendment to it in 1936 provided the legal framework that limited, but did not entirely eliminate, the possibility of permanent replacement. Political times unfriendly to labor, such as the Reagan-Bush years, greatly increased the likelihood of this most devastating of strike outcomes. That's why Democrats friendly to organized labor in 1992 sought to pass a law to protect future workers against what Frank Lorenzo had done to his pilots. The Continental strike began in a flurry of confusion. On the Union side, nobody was ready for it or knew what to do. Continental's pilots had to immediately shift gears from thinking about how to make their airline work to carefully considering how to make it stop. For these ALPA members, it was a wrenching transition. Continental's pilots took terrific losses in the early going while they sorted out their internal problems, then rallied only to suffer crushing reverses in the courts. Following the Bill Disco decision of February 1984, which we will discuss in Part 2, Only the hardcore Continental pilots held out against Lorenzo. If the result wasn't total defeat, it clearly wasn't victory either. They hunkered down, doggedly kept faith with each other, and ALPA finally secured their reinstatement as part of the much-maligned Order and Award of October 31, 1985, grimly nicknamed the Surrender Agreement, which satisfied nobody. Getting 1,000 loyal ALPA members back onto their flight decks constituted a victory of sorts, even though they returned to work without the contract that had caused the strike in the first place. Lorenzo's bankruptcy court tactics and the judge's tilting of the playing field in his favor would permit him to fly through the strike. But we must remember that, historically, any airline boss determined to fly during a pilot strike has always succeeded in doing so. ALPA has never won any work stoppage in its history on pure economic muscle alone, or because a determined opponent like Frank Lorenzo couldn't find pilots willing to cross picket lines. Even in 1932, at the profession's beginning, when the sense of brotherhood among airmen was very strong, E.L. Cord was able to staff his Century Airlines against the determined opposition of Dave Benke and a Congress friendly to organized labor. In 1983, Hank Duffy faced a vastly different situation, one that cried out for a pro-labor president in the White House. The Reagan administration created a hostile political climate nationally, which, had it existed during any previous ALPA strike, would almost certainly have resulted in a crushing defeat. In addition, deregulation spawned a host of collateral problems that ALPA had never faced in a strike situation. A festering problem at Frontier, whose management was threatening to create Frontier Horizon, an alter-ego airline similar to New York Air, preoccupied ALPA's national officers. At the time of Lorenzo's bankruptcy filing, the September 1983 issue of Airline Pilot was devoted almost exclusively to Frontier Horizon, which would remain a threat until Frontier itself died. Meanwhile, Frank Lorenzo got a free ride at Continental. So Hank Duffy would receive a rough baptism in this first great crisis of his presidency as he fought Lorenzo through a thicket of bankruptcy court decrees no other ALPA strike effort had ever encountered. In the long run, ALPA could claim a qualified victory in that Congress changed the bankruptcy law to prevent any future Lorenzo-style use of it for union busting. But in the short run, and as viewed from the trenches by striking Continental pilots, long-term victories were hard to appreciate. Events in the first three weeks of the Continental strike almost preordained its unhappy outcome. As we have seen, Continental's dazed MEC told the pilots to report to work under duress, whatever that meant, following the initial 72-hour bankruptcy shutdown. Lorenzo would not have been able to fly the schedule he planned if the MEC had ordered a walkout from the start. When the MEC initiated the strike three days later on October 1st, some pilots, accustomed by now to Lorenzo's emergency work rules, remained on their flight decks. This group of about 75 pilots would be joined by approximately 200 more crossovers later in the month. Guy Casey, who served as strike coordinator, recalled that it was quite common for the Continental pilots to believe the former Texas international pilots at the airline were crossing the picket line. However, records from this time verify this was not the case. So with about 20% of the pre-strike workforce, counting the relatively large contingent of management pilots pressed into service, Lorenzo would be able to fly about 20% of his pre-strike schedule, despite ALPA's job action. Lorenzo's success in getting that first group of pilots to cross during the early days of the strike owed much to the skill that earned him the reputation for being a smooth talker. Using a technique he'd used at TXI, Lorenzo began to personally phone pilots. Armed with specific details about each pilot's family situation, Lorenzo could be a formidable salesman. Rather than make threats, Lorenzo's most effective tactic was to project a sense of concern, an earnestness that he really needed each pilot. Lorenzo had an undeniable gift for this kind of persuasion, as do all good salesmen. He also had sources that allowed him to target certain pilots, those with expensive toys, boats, second homes, and divorces with these phone calls. It was devastatingly effective. Lorenzo's verbal magic even persuaded one member of Continental's MEC to cross. But there can be no doubt about the importance of those first few strikers Lorenzo personally convinced to cross the line. There was a vast difference between pilots who crossed the picket line in October and those who succumbed to sheer hopelessness many months later. After the Bill Disco decision, it became apparent that Lorenzo would be able to sustain his operation with the full approval of the federal courts. If the Continental strikers had been able to hold those first critical 300 pilots on their side of the picket line in October, Lorenzo almost certainly would have capitulated. For three nervous weeks, he trembled on the edge of defeat. He didn't have enough management pilots to fly his projected schedule for more than a few days, and the sheer logistics of requalification meant that he couldn't get enough of the 400 continental off the street new hires onto his flight decks in time to save the situation. In any case, Lorenzo didn't advertise for permanent replacement new hires until November. But as October progressed, He was getting enough picket line crossers to hope that he might not have to hire any off-the-street pilots. When it looked like Alpa's lines were going to hold, Lorenzo would find pilots elsewhere. But he would have lost without those October picket line crossers, particularly a group of 110 who crossed during the third weekend of the strike, when the MEC seemed to be in turmoil Owing to the recall of MEC chair Larry Baxter. As Lorenzo's skeleton pilot force nearly ran up against the maximum FAA imposed flight time limits, and a shutdown loomed during the closing days of the month, he grew desperate. Proof of Lorenzo's desperation lay in his uncharacteristic willingness to resume serious negotiations in late October. Once Lorenzo had survived that first month, and realized he could tap into the reservoir of unemployed pilots who would cross Alpa's pickets without hesitation, negotiations became a sham. By November, the second month of the strike, only a hard, remorseless struggle remained. Although the conventional wisdom holds that after the first month the decks were stacked against the Continental pilots, they were not without weapons, and they made a good fight of it, the courts provided a promising avenue of attack. Because of Lorenzo's use of the bankruptcy laws, Alpa had standing as a litigant. Continental's pilots were creditors under the bankruptcy rules because Lorenzo owed them money for unpaid salaries and unfunded pensions. Furthermore, there was always the possibility that he would lose, that a judge would disallow cancellation of union contracts under the bankruptcy code. Eventually, these court actions would not turn out well for ALPA, but they did force Lorenzo into court-ordered negotiations that would bring about the order and award settlement of 1985. But for many months to come, nobody could be sure of the outcome of these legal actions, so the war had to continue as if they didn't exist. Keep in mind that there were 4,000 pilots available. Hank Duffy noted that, among them, Braniff pilots were eager to fly again. When Braniff emerged from bankruptcy in March 1984, it did so under a new ALPA contract with pay and working conditions many striking Continental pilots thought equivalent to Lorenzo's. News of this new Braniff contract came almost simultaneously with the Bill Disco decision, angering many weary Continental pilots who were wavering as their strike settled into its sixth month. Duffy's first involvement with Braniff was signing their contract. He debated whether to do this, finally deciding to endorse it. ALPA held out for the boilerplate terminology and the standard seniority and grievance clauses, but the union wasn't going to secure anything that cost money. Duffy's contractual lenience towards Braniff's new owner J. Pritzker of Hyatt Hotel fame, seemed to many Continental strikers as oddly out of sync with Alpa's policy toward Lorenzo. Of course, the great difference between the new Braniff contract and the conditions Lorenzo offered was that the Pritzkers negotiated with Alpa, whereas Lorenzo imposed his terms unilaterally. Duffy hoped that once Braniff was on its feet financially, the B-scale contract he signed could be upgraded. As it turned out, he was right, although in 1989, immediately after agreeing to the industry standard contract that the first agreement was intended to procure, the airline once again filed for bankruptcy. So it all came to nothing, but that lay in the future. For the moment, the Continental pilot's view from the trenches lacked this foresight, and the substandard Brainef contract produced considerable grumbling on the picket line and an increased willingness to cross it. Next time on Flying the Line, Continental pilots receive strike benefits followed by a change in leadership. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 14, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by george e hopkins copyright 2000 we hope you have enjoyed this podcast to listen and subscribe to more in this series please check us out online at alpha.org, or find us on all major podcast platforms until next time this is the flying the line podcast a look into the past of the airline pilots association international production copyright alpha 2023 all rights reserved